Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. On October 13, 2012, Robert D'Alessandro, director of the U.S. Army Center of Military History, spoke at the opening of the new MacArthur Memorial Visitor Center, which also featured the opening of a new World War I exhibit at the memorial entitled Under the Rainbow, the 42nd Rainbow Division in the Great War. D'Alessandro is the author of several books, including The Organization and Insignia of the American Expeditionary Force, Willing Patriots, Men of Color in the First World War, and American Lions, the 332nd Infantry Regiment in Italy in World War I. While at the memorial, D'Alessandro spoke about the organization of the American Expeditionary Force on a macro and a micro level. We hope you enjoy his presentation. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, I'm glad we got a small group, because I love talking about organization. I'm an organization nerd for the Army, and I think that a very exciting period of time for the Army, the Marine Corps, and the Navy in organization springs from what happens when we are asked to put together our first big expeditionary force. Now, some of you are going to look at me and say, okay, well, you know, we went over to the Philippines and we went into, into Cuba, during the Spanish-American War, but the truth of the matter is this is really the birth of all the units that you and I know today in our armed forces. So before World War I, there is no 42nd, there is no 101st, there is no 82nd, all these units that we know of, storied units in the Army, they spring from decisions that are made uh, in 1917. Now, uh, Let's just take a quick snapshot. The Army on the eve of World War I. Take a look at the numbers. Small, small, regular Army. And you know that the United States has always been wired to be suspicious of large standing armies. And we are in a period on the eve of World War I where we've come off a couple of expeditionary missions. We've wrapped up the Indian conflicts, Native American conflicts in the West. You know, I constantly hear senior leaders in the Pentagon say, oh, we've just con we're concluding our longest war. Well, you're not concluding your longest war. A decade is not the longest war by any means. We've been fighting with the Native Americans since the 17th century in America, and the Army's been on the frontier and stationed in frontier areas where MacArthur grew up, by the way, uh, since the Civil War and before. So very small regular army, and there's a National Guard. That's it. There's no third branch that will become the National Army of draftees or conscripts uh, at this point, just the two main. And I put as a point of comparison the Bulgarian army. I thought you might see that as interest. Okay, so what informs the decisions to create an AEF? There are a lot. I just put a map up there. What have we been doing? We've been in Cuba, we've been in Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, all through Mexico. There's been a lot going on in the years before uh, World War I. And America has built, based as many of you know, on need for stations for the Navy and places for us to go, a colonial empire. 
and we've picked up a lot of colonial holdings. And there's another thing that informs the decision of the War Department and General Pershing and others. What have the Allies learned? So in 1917, when we declare war, we're not inward looking. We've sent people over. And in fact, that Baker Commission, run by a Colonel Baker, is directed by the Secretary of War, Baker. And there's a second commission that goes over to take a look at what we could learn from the Allied forces who have now fought the war for some years. And that's chartered by Pershing. And those two commissions discover pretty much the same thing. And they end up synchronizing their findings that they present to the War Department. Number one is what the Allies want is troops, not large American formations. So they're not interested in American armies and corps. They're interested in regiments that can be plugged in to existing Allied formations. Now, that doesn't play well in Washington. It really doesn't. They don't want to take American troops and just feed them into a meat grinder. They've been reading the headlines, too. They want American troops under American command. That's going to be one of the things that really, really pushes how we organize our force. Second bullet that I talked there is jointness. Now, since the American Civil War, the armed forces have been talking about should we play with combined arms. In the Civil War, we have pure units. What I'm talking about is an infantry regiment is just that. It's 1,000 people carrying rifles. An artillery battery is just that. It's cannons. The new branch of aviation is just that. It's airplanes or balloons or whatever you want to use. In the Signal Corps, it's pure signal. Should we be putting this stuff together and seeing if there's some sort of synergy between the different branches? So that's a huge conversation that's occurring before we go over there. Now, that next bullet, and this one is as topical as I can tell you today, it's a discussion that goes on starting in World War I, and you hear it to this day in Afghanistan. What is the tooth-to-tail ratio, and what should it look like? Now, let me explain that to those that aren't military. That is, for every fighter that you put on the line, how many people do you need behind that person to support them? That's tooth-to-tail. I'll tell you, in the Civil War, tooth-to-tail is about one to three. So every guy you've got shooting, you've got a couple of supply people, you've got a couple of medics, you've got a couple of other folks that are behind them. You know, what do you think tooth-to-tail is today? One to 190 is generally the tooth-to-tail ratio. So for every killer you got out there shooting bullets, you got logisticians and information technology people and all these other things. This is a big deal with how Pershing will organize. And he wants to put people in there, and he wants to put divisions in there, but he's also being asked for the Allied forces for other things, like capability to work on ra railroads, like lumber milling units, like bakeries, like other detachments that can provide in the parlance of uh, the AEF, SOS, services of supply. And in fact, our allied contribution is going to be very significant in the logistics realm, as significant as the fighting divisions. Now, because I'm pressed for time, I want to show you this chart. It's got a lot of information on it, but I just want to fly through these, and I'll show you how we get there. 
So this is how the fighting troops come out. If you look at the column to your left, uh, extreme left, that's the division number. These are the regular army divisions. Now, the original plan was to organize those through 20, whoops, through 20, going the wrong way here, through 20, but the flu uh, influenza outbreak changes all that. So they're really not going to field much beyond the 9th. Uh, some of them will be in training beyond that, 20th being one of those, but they're not going to get over there in time. So that's the regular army. Here's the National Guard. So the, the regular army divisions run 1 through 20. National Guard runs 26 through 42 in this plan, 42nd division that the new exhibit uh, is up in the hallway there. I'll just highlight them, two brigades, the 83rd and the 84th, with four regiments per, uh, per the division, two per brigade, and then you see machine gun battalions and FA, and I'll talk how, field artillery, I'll talk to how that happens. And last but not least, a new branch, these are draftees, called the U.S. National Army. They'll run divisions 76 through 97. The plan was originally to have 100 divisions, but that's not going to happen. Okay, so here's what you do. The War College Division of the War Department says you need a million people to go to Europe by 1918. One million by the end of 18, 100 divisions. It's interesting, let me just fast forward, the same strategy is going to be used in World War II. It's kind of interesting, 100 division gamble it's called in World War II. So the Army will comprise in those categories that I showed you, numbered that way. They are still numbered that way to this day. We don't have all those people in the active force by any means or in the reserves, they've all been tailored back. The National Army becomes the reserves that we know today. Okay, so how do you get them? That's how you come up with the people in the National Army, through a draft. First national draft since 1863, and there are the rules for it. There's the U.S. population. Now this is another interesting mechanic that's also played in World War II. Um, if you take too much of the population you change the nature of the republic. If you put too many people in uniform, this is, all kinds of studies have shown this, you will change the nature of the republic. That tipping point is believed in World War I to be 10%. So they look at Germany there, a convenient figure, and they're past the tipping point. You've turned into a state of military folks, because if you take 10% of the population, one in 10, somebody's going to have a direct connection to the military. They're all going to be invested in the military. There's no voice anywhere to talk the other side of the story. So we've got to stay very carefully in that range, which gives you the figure of the bottom figure that we have to stay under a 10.5 million force. So. Pershing's okay, he's intolerance. The other thing is, do you, or do you recruit African Americans? This becomes an immediate problem during the draft. Should we draft them? And of course the NAACP is pushing heartily to get units into this fight, uh, and as you know, they will. But, but interesting figures, just I throw up there for you. Okay, so what's the combat forces look like? I love doing this with folks. So here's what it is, he decides that Ultimately, there will be three armies created, nine corps, and 38 divisions. So let's run that down for you. Here's what it looks like. The building block size 
of an army organization in World War I remains about what it is in the Civil War. Sorry, I'm blocking you there, Lisa. Here, let me run over here. And it's, it's, uh, it's the company, 256 people, commanded by a captain. You see the others. Runs up through a battalion to a regiment. I'm going to show you what those all look like. And all the way up to an army. The thing we care about on that chart is that there are about 27,000 people in a division. The teeth of organization of an army unit, and this changes in World War I for the first time, will become the squad. And I just show you because the most famous squads come out of World War II and not World War I, but that's what it looks like, an infantry squad designed to be led by a sergeant or a corporal with teams of men. Now that chart I love. That's what a rifle platoon looks like. So you see in, in World War I, they're divided by sections. This is totally from the Baker Commission. First section, grenades, it's trench warfare. Second section, rifle grenadiers. There's your teeth, teeth, teeth. Your rifleman section. And then fourth section, get machine guns, that's a combined arms tilt, into a platoon. So a platoon has not only indirect fire, if you will, from what they called bombers in World War I or grenadiers, but they have automatic rifle fire from those riflemen with Shosho machine guns. That building block, that company, leads us to what the battalions and regiments look like. An infantry regiment with three battalions, those are the companies in them, and you can attach other things to them and we put them in what's called a square division, four regiments. Back to my first chart that I showed you and highlighted on the 42nd. In the case of the 42nd, 165th, 6th, 7th, and 8th are the four regiments in the two brigades. So you use brigades and division as a building block to the next level of command, and that is the first echelon that you would be familiar with if you were a Civil War officer, really, is taking those regiments and building them up into brigades and divisions. And again, I like to compare what World War I looked like to World War II because I'm kind of interested in organization. What's happening in World War II is you see the more combined arms, but the Baker Commission discovers that we need to have support in the form of artillery available to every division. So each division will have its own artillery brigade. And you see here that they have two 105 regiments and a 155 regiment. These are big and small guns that give the opportunity for a division commander to employ his own artillery in support of his own troops. That's a big breakthrough for the Army. If you remember the Civil War and famous moments in the Civil War, Army commanders tended to control artillery. And of course, the best examples are Lee at places like Fredericksburg and Meade at places like Gettysburg. All right, I, this is an eye chart, but I just want to show you what else they do with this division, because it, it is, as I said, a first. So you see on the top of the chart two infantry brigades that I talked about. You get your own organic engineers, engineers' missions or survivability, uh, counter mobility. They can build obstacles for you. They can breach obstacles for you. You get your own signal battalion. That gets you to talk to all your companies, both radio and wire. 
and they have telegraph capability and heliograph too if you need it, you get your own trench mortar battery and you get those field artillery brigades that I talked about and here's an interesting thing. So when they build the 17 division, they give these guys an aero squadron. That's going to change, but it's amazing again because they foresaw the use of, our, of air for reconnaissance and for spotting artillery. So this division commander, when he goes out, and then of course the trains handle everything from medical, that's what the sanitary train up, up there is, supply train, and extra engineers and ammo, that's your logistics folks. So you get your quartermaster supplies there, medical supplies and everything else you need, comes out of your trains. So this person, this, this division commander, has the first in the history of the Army combined arms team. Got all kinds of support organic to him. He's got artillery organic to him. He's got air organic to him. And they try this, and guess what they learn? That division commanders don't know how to control air because they've never done it before. So they take the aviation squadron out, and they tailor the regiment, and they end up with about 27,000 people in that division. So you take these formations, these division formations, and you build them up to the core level and you add some more things. So what in the division, remember I told you there are four regiments with two brigades, a square division. Now this is a flexible organization, three to five, very rarely five in World War I, but three to five divisions. And as I said to you, you up there are usually four. And no fixed structure and you pin on lots and lots and lots of support tailored to the needs of the mission. So I've already mentioned the Army Air Corps. That's a great thing to add. In the bottom right of the slide, you see three guys from the Pioneer Infantry. Those are, those are kind of service engineer units that repair roads and fix headquarters buildings and do some of the work you want. Uh, there's the tank corps. And your exhibit in the lobby talks about when Patton and his tanks were at one point attached to the 42nd. That's pretty unusual, but it does happen. At this level, most of the tanks come in at the core level. And then you can get chemical mortars and chemical artillery, and you can get cavalry. Believe it or not, we're still using cavalry in World War I in its traditional mission, very heavily in guarding headquarters at this point. Uh, and indeed uh, also in their recon mission, their reconnaissance mission, and lots and lots and lots of other service support. So if the commander decides that he needs some kind of water work, that'll come from the core level. So we go one more level up, and that's armies. And of course, if you study World War I, First Army is where it's all at. They're the big army. They're going to play in all the campaigns. This is up at the campaign level. And they have, again, no fixed organization, but usually two to three corps. And the big names you see come out of corps command. And of course, it is the formation of the first army. That's the insignia on the far right there. That uh, is Patton, uh, Pershing's first army, uh, American army in Europe. Not only did we get all the units that we live with today in the military, being formed in World War I, we get the insignia. Now, there were, insignia was lightly in use during the Civil War and Spanish-American War. It, it comes out of the Civil War when Joe Hooker uh, 
decides that in order to control stragglers, he's going to come up with a simple system to identify core. And it's a very simple system. First core is a little circle in, in the Civil War. It's a circle, by the way, in World War I as well. And then it's color-coded, red, white, and blue, kind of hard to forget. Red, white, and blue, and fourth, if there's a fourth division, green. So if you see a red circle, it's first core, first division, white, second division, first core, et cetera. In the AEF, it's a totally different process. Soldiers create the insignia. In fact, uh, attributed to the 81st Division that shows up at the port getting ready to go overseas, and they have little wildcats on their shoulder. And the wildcat division was their nickname. And they push for uh, insignia. In fact, the officer in charge of the port says, I'm not going to send these guys overseas because this is an authorized uh, the War Department says, well, okay, fine, we need troops over there a lot worse, and we need to uphold this order, so they go. Uh, I put a couple on the screen that are my favorites. Uh, we still have this insignia today. Up in the left top is the 1st Infantry Division, and, uh, of course, they chose a number one, and the mythology behind it, I don't know if it's true or not, but I've heard it forever, is they cut the one out of the field moots, the red cloth on a German fatigue cap to make the one in the background, of course, green because they're army green. Uh, that's a neat one. And Steve, you see, I took care. I didn't make this chart because I was speaking here, but these are my favorites. This one is for the 27th New York, New York National Guard. Uh, you can see the monogram of NY for New York, and their commanding officer was a fellow by the name of Orion, and there's the constant Orion in the background. So these tell great stories. The one in the center is a really neat one. That's the War Department approval document for the second division. And they had a contest division-wide to select the insignia. And the most American of symbols, the American Indian, was chosen as the main feature with a star in the background. And then there's a very complicated system of backgrounds to that star background, but that's the actual one that says, designed by Sergeant D. Lundy, Company A, second supply train, etc. And of course the one for the rainbow, I have to tell that story, but Rod knows it better than I do. It is purportedly, because of the mixed nature, we've talked about it over the course of the weekend, you probably remember there was four regiments, there was a New York regiment, there was an Iowa regiment, there was an Alabama regiment, and then a regiment drawn from many, many other states in the country. And so when it came up to design a patch for the 42nd, MacArthur purportedly said, let them then wear the rainbow, for the division stretches across the United States like a rainbow from coast to coast. So that's the rainbow design. And I gave you two others. The one up in the top right is the 77th Division, New York Reserves, or Metropolitan Division, who came mostly from New York City and chose the Statue of Liberty. And the one in the bottom is the Cyclone Division. When they were in training, a cyclone struck their training camp and actually killed one soldier. And uh, so they wanted to memorialize that with the red, white, and blue on the shield and the monogram with CY for high psi or cyclone. So insignia of the AF. All right. There's the wildcat one in the center, and I just show you a couple others. This is an interesting one, and then I'm going to open for questions. So this is the insignia of the tank corps. 
up here. And it's an interesting one because those are the branch colors of cavalry, meaning strike, infantry, meaning firepower, and artillery to celebrate the three arms of both. Okay, I'm going to end up on that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.